Before we start this morning, let's just bow our heads in prayer. Father God, we pray you speak to us this morning through your word. Use even me, I pray. Amen. David Copperfield is a famous magician, known for doing illusions on a grand scale and usually in front of a live audience. There was one time when he managed to make the Statue of Liberty disappear and then reappear again, and another time when he passed through a solid brick wall from one side to the other. Now, I remember seeing him do one of his tricks, and this trick was a levitation trick with a bit of a difference. You see, his prop for this trick was a sword, but not just any sword. It wasn't a flat blade, as you normally, normally would see, but it had a cylindrical shaft, which was tapered to a fairly blunt point. So after much mucking about and flouncing, as magicians do before a trick, he placed the sword in its stand so its point was pointing vertically upwards. He then had two assistants come and take his rigid body, one had his feet and one had his head, and place him on top of the sword. Once there, he bade them move away, and he perfectly levitated horizontally with the point of the sword in the middle of his back. Okay, so that's not exactly the Statue of Liberty disappearing, but what came next was really interesting. So the two assistants came back, one at his head and one at his feet, and instead of just lifting him off the sword, they actually spun him around. So he was spinning on the top of this sword while levitating. And then his rigid body went limp. His arms and his legs flailed beneath him, and he fell down upon the sword. So much so that the sword came out through his chest by a good three inches, all while spinning. So the crowd, the crowd gave a, a large gasp, wondering if something had gone wrong. But this is all part of the trick. So his two assistants turned up again and stopped him in place. Then his body went back to the rigid form that he had and placed one hand on the tip of the sword and another hand behind his back. He lifted himself up off the sword. Then the two assistants put him back on his feet to find no harm, no problem. That was pretty good. I remember that trick from a long time ago and stayed with me for a while. Now, if I was going to ask you this morning whether you believe that he actually did this trick and whether you believe that I actually saw it, and I polled the room to get your opinion, I think I'd find that most of you would actually believe that it was the case. And there are some good reasons for that. First of all, most of you know me, so it's unlike I'm going to be lying to you, especially from here at the pulpit. And also, I gave you a pretty good description of the events, I hope, at least an adequate description, that you might actually believe that it happened. And finally, of course, it's pretty easily verifiable that he did this. A simple check on YouTube would probably find the trick. However, if I told you this morning that I was convinced that the sword actually did pierce through him, then I think if I asked you if you believed me, I'd get a different result. In fact, I think the only thing you'd like you to believe is that I'd suddenly taken leave of my senses. And there's a good reason for that too. After all, the wounds he would have received from having the sword pierce him would most likely have killed him. If not, he would have been in a very nasty state and it would have been a bit of a mess as well. And also, we know that he is a magician. We know that this is a trick. This is what he does for a living. Now, unsurprisingly, when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, we find people make some very similar objections. You may have heard these arguments before. There are those who claim that Jesus never resurrected because he never actually died upon the cross. 
He may have entered some type of coma or shock state and been mistaken for being dead, but never actually died. And if he wasn't dead, then he never actually resurrected. And of course, there are those who take the opposite view. Yes, Jesus died when he was all on the cross, but the resurrection is just a trick. See, he actually died and stayed dead. And the story of his resurrection is nothing more than a myth being perpetuated by his disciples for their own benefit. Now, these are both valid arguments, and they both stem in the one belief, and that is that people do not just rise from the dead. So, is the resurrection just a myth? Or did Jesus really rise from the dead? In order to find out this morning, let's take a look at the evidence recorded from an eyewitness and one who was sceptical about it as well. Turn, if you will, in your Bibles to John chapter 20, and we'll read from verse 24. That's on page 1075 in our Black Church Bibles. Where we read this. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Now, Thomas is not mentioned often in the Gospels. In fact, he's mostly known for this actual passage. And it's from this passage that we get the phrase, Doubting Thomas. Now, you may have heard that before. It's usually used in reference to someone who doesn't take you at your word, but asks for further evidence. Now, perhaps that moniker is justified here. I mean, if you read from verse 24, we see that Thomas is one of the twelve. Being one of the twelve, he had some pretty privileged access to Jesus. He would have seen some of his miracles firsthand. He would have seen him feeding the 5,000 from the few loaves and fish. He was there when Jesus commanded the winds and the waves to be still. He witnessed Jesus walking on water, and he would have seen the healing of all types of sicknesses and diseases. In fact, he was even there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, if that isn't enough, as one of the twelve, he was very close to Jesus. He shared meals with him. He slept under the same roof. He received instructions from him that others didn't. So with this kind of exposure to Jesus, we think, surely Thomas can believe in the resurrection. But he doesn't. And he has some good reasons not to. First of all, the other disciples have seen the proof of Jesus, but Thomas has not. If you just go back in your Bibles a a bit further, to verse 19, in the same chapter, we read this. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. But Thomas wasn't actually there. In verse 24 we read this. He was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Now I'm certain the other disciples did all they could to try and convince him. But this was no trivial thing they were asking Thomas to believe. He's being asked to believe that somebody has been raised from the dead. He's being asked to believe what he thought was impossible. This is quite similar to my opening illustration of David Copperfield. I'm certain nobody here would ever believe that a sword actually pierced through him without first seeing some hard evidence. And as it turns out, 
That's exactly what Thomas is asking for here. He wants some hard evidence. And that's not all that unreasonable. In fact, he's only asking for the same evidence that the other disciples had seen. See, in verse 25, he says to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. So notice how Thomas mentions the nail marks, which we know come from Jesus' crucifixion. And interestingly, he mentions Jesus' side. Now this is another good reason for Thomas to not believe. Do you remember what caused the wound in Jesus' side? If you go back to uh, John chapter 19, verse 34, and I'll just read it to you, we read this. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Now that's an unusual observation, a sudden flow of blood and water. An interesting phenomenon. Modern forensic science is investigating into this account and has come to the conclusion that two conditions must be met in order for there to be a sudden flow of blood and water. The first is that the person must have been struggling for breath as this builds up fluids around the heart and lungs. Those who have drowned or suffocated have these symptoms, as do those who are crucified, since the weight of the body hung by the hands bears down upon the chest, making it difficult to breathe. The state of exhaustion from the ordeal also makes it difficult for you to raise your head, making it that much harder again to breathe. This explains the water that flowed from Jesus' side. Now secondly, for a sudden flow of blood, a specific type of heart attack must have occurred, known as a heart rupture. This is where the heart muscle itself, or the arteries that lead into it, literally split open. Now you may have heard the expression before that someone has died of a broken heart which usually means they've lost someone dear to them and no longer have the will to live. But Jesus' heart literally burst inside him under the strain and suffering of his crucifixion. You see, before this spirit pierced his side, Jesus was already dead. He wasn't faking it. It wasn't some sort of coma or some trick. Because the wound from the spear produced a sudden flow of blood and water, Modern forensic science confirms that Jesus must have been dead from the heart attack that he suffered. And this is not that surprising. As a soldier who pierced him knew he was dead, those who witnessed it knew Jesus was dead. John, who recorded this, knew that Jesus was dead. And Thomas knew it. He knew it because he mentions the wound in Jesus' side. He knows that Jesus is actually dead. And this is why it's so hard for Thomas to believe. It's just not possible that someone who is most certainly dead and in such a gruesome manner suddenly comes back to life. But for Thomas, the impossible is about to become reality. Turn with me to verse 26, where we read, A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. See, this time Thomas is with the others when Jesus appears. And for the second time here, Jesus appears amongst them when they were in a locked room. Now there are those who think that this shows that Jesus is now in a spiritual form since the doors were locked. But I think they're reading just a little too much into this verse. 
You see, the Bible does not mention how Jesus got into the locked room. There is nothing here that suggests that he morphed through the walls. There's no mention of him materialising in front of them or that there was some sort of puff of smoke and suddenly Jesus was there. What we do read is that the doors were locked and then that Jesus stood among them. See, it's much more likely that Jesus simply unlocked the door and entered. Since, as we read on, we will see that he most definitely has a physical body. In verse 27 we read, Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Now it's very hard to reach out and touch a spirit. It's very hard to put your finger in the marks if there's nothing there to put your finger into. And yet Jesus is inviting Thomas to do just that. How can he do that unless he has a physical form? And Thomas is not going to be fooled here. This is no ghost, and nor is it some imposter or impersonator. Not only does Jesus bear the marks of his ordeal, but this is the actual Jesus. Thomas has been following him for years. He knows who this is. It's the same Jesus who only weeks before humbled himself and washed Thomas's feet. This is Jesus, alive, in physical form, and standing in front of Thomas. Thomas now has his evidence and is faced with the reality of what he thought was impossible. And such an event demands a response. Read from verse 28. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now there are those that suggest the words of Thomas here, My Lord and my God, are just an exclamation of astonishment from Thomas because in the same way that someone might say something if they were suddenly surprised. And while it is true that Thomas is experiencing something that is truly remarkable here, that suggestion is a little wide of the mark. Not only did Thomas direct these words to him, as you read in verse 28, Thomas said to him, that is to Jesus, but it is confirmed as a statement of belief in the following verse, where Jesus says, Because you have seen me, you have believed. So Thomas now believes. But what is it exactly that Thomas believed? Does he believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead? Well, yes, he does. But more than that, does he believe that Jesus is both Lord and God? Well, yes, again. But more than that still, Thomas calls him my Lord and my God. See, his response is more than just a simple acceptance of the facts here, some mere confirmation of the evidence that's before him. It's a personal response. It's a heartfelt conviction. And it's one that will have a deep impact on his life from this point forward. It'll impact on his priorities, on the things that he says and he does, on the things that he no longer says or does, on his goals and ambitions. It'll impact on his relationships with others and on his thoughts. Every part of Thomas's life has now changed as a result of the resurrection of Jesus and the evidence before him. Now, the English word believe here doesn't quite fit the response that we see from Thomas. So it's probably better summed up using a phrase you've probably heard from this pulpit more than once, and that is, repent and believe. 
So that was Thomas's experience. But where do we fit in here? It's roughly 2,000 years since Jesus' death and resurrection. But it still demands the same response from us today. And if you do believe in the same way as Thomas, then Jesus calls you blessed. In verse 29 we read, Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, there is a blessing for those who believe but have not seen as distinct from those who have seen. And we will look at that blessing a little later. For there is a common blessing given to all who believe, regardless of whether they've seen him or not. I want to look at that one first this morning. If you can turn your Bibles to John chapter 14, keep a finger in where you are now because we'll be coming back and forth a bit. John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3 on page 1067. We read these words from John chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. This is Jesus speaking here. Now, the, the word trust here in Greek is the same word that we had for believe in our former passage. Um, trust in God and believe, now you have believed, are the same word in Greek. So Jesus is asking here, not that you just believe or trust in God, but also in him in the same way. Read on in verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. So what is it that Jesus is going to do? He's going to prepare a place for those who believe in him as they believe in God. And where is this place? It's his father's house. That is heaven itself. Well, how will we get there? Well, Jesus will take us there to be with him. See, this is the blessing, the gift that comes from that personal response, from repenting and believing in Jesus. A place in heaven to be with Jesus forever. See, immediately after Jesus was crucified, these words must have sent hollow to the disciples. How could Jesus do this when he was dead? But now that Jesus is alive, they have a sure hope, a certain hope that he can actually do what he said. He can prepare a place for them because he lives. And he can take them to be with him because he is both Lord and God. We too have this same certain hope, for nothing has changed. Jesus lives still, and Jesus is both Lord and God, both now and forevermore. And this gift, this blessing, is given freely to all who repent and believe. So where do you stand this morning? What is your response to the resurrection of Jesus? If you have not responded in the same way as Thomas, why not take the opportunity to do so even today and receive this blessing, this gift that comes by repentance and belief? Or perhaps you remain unconvinced. After all, 
I'm trying to prove to you that Jesus is alive by using the account of Thomas in the Gospel of John. Both these men were disciples. You could argue that they write these things with a vested interest, with a bias towards having us believe, and, as such, they should not be trusted. Well, if you think that way, you are partly right. John certainly does have a vested interest in the outcome of his book. But it's not a hidden agenda. as He states it quite clearly. If you return back to John chapter 20 and verse 30, keep your finger in where you are now in John 14, we read this, John 20 and verse 30, it's page 1075. Jesus did many other miracles, miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, believing you may have life in his name. See, John is upfront about his intentions here in writing the gospel. He is indeed writing these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. But that does not automatically make everything he has said untrue. And to illustrate this, I'm going to use a modern-day example. See, at the end of the Second World War, the Nazis committed many atrocities on the Jewish people in what we now know as the Holocaust. Now, there are very few people alive who will deny this ever happened, as there are many evidences that it actually took place. There's photos, there's lists of victims, there's first-hand accounts, there's even a museum dedicated to the Holocaust. And yet all of these evidences had been researched, gathered and presented by the Jews themselves. They most certainly have a vested interest in doing so, as they never want to see this happen to their people again. In fact, it's their vested interest that drives them to be as factual and as thorough in their collection of their evidences as they possibly can, so that no one can argue against them. And the same principle applies here in the Gospels regarding Jesus. And John himself actually lays down a challenge here. So he does not list all the things that Jesus did. As you read in verse 30, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his, of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But he did write enough that you may believe that Jesus is God. He says in the following verse, But these are written that you may believe Jesus is the Christ. So if you are not convinced from the account of Thomas this morning, then take up John's challenge. Read the rest of John. Look into the life of Jesus and come to a conclusion. If you're still not convinced, then read the rest of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, which contain events not covered in the Gospel of John. And if you're still not convinced, then look into the legitimacy of the Gospels themselves. On the bookstore here, we have books that specifically deal with the authenticity and reliability of the Gospels. You can pick one up, take a read and come to a conclusion. Or perhaps you have some other reason for not believing this morning. Perhaps an alternative form of wisdom has you convinced otherwise. Perhaps you have faith in another God. Perhaps you believe there is no God. Whatever it is, I implore you this morning, look into the life of Jesus. 
Do not flippantly reject the Lordship of Jesus. Do not dismiss the resurrection of Jesus as a trivial thing. For as surely as John declares that there is life in his name in verse 31, there is surely none without. Turn back to me, if you will, to John chapter 14, on page 1067. And we'll read from verse 3, where Jesus says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus does not mince his words here. As surely as he would take those who repent and believe to be with him in heaven, those who do not believe will not be granted entry. Friends, this is the very definition of hell itself. To be shut out from heaven, never to be allowed in, and to be away from God and along with him all the good gifts that he provides. This is what awaits those who do not repent and believe. And do not be fooled into thinking otherwise. So you may believe that there are other ways to get to heaven, perhaps by a different faith to a God that bears a different name. Or perhaps you believe that Jesus is Lord and God, but you need to do some good here first to secure your place in heaven. But Jesus says, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or you may believe that what is true for me is not necessarily true for you. That there is no universal truth, only what works for the individual. But Jesus says, I am the truth. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or you may believe that when we die, there is nothing more. It's all over and we simply become worm food. Well, you may believe that there are more experiences for us here, after death, and we will be reincarnated here on earth depending on how we behaved in this life. Jesus says, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If any of these things describe you this morning, then I urge you to take Jesus at his word. He will reject those who reject him. But he will prepare a place for you in heaven and take you to him if you repent and believe. He can do this because he did rise from the dead. And he can do this because he is both Lord and God. And for those of us today who do believe, Jesus calls us blessed. Turn back, if you will, to John chapter 20 and verse 29, where we read, Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, this is a blessing that is more than a common blessing that comes from faith. For it is something that is not given to Thomas, 
but is given to us who have not seen. Now, there is a sermon just in this verse alone, and I think you've listened to me for long enough this morning, but in closing, I do want to encourage you with just some of the benefits that come from this blessing. So you are blessed because there is a greater working of faith by the Holy Spirit in you than was worked in Thomas. You are blessed because you can trust in the Lord without requiring visual proof. This is a sure mark of a spiritual and renewed mind. This is evidence that you are truly sons and daughters of God. And trusting in this way leaves you in good stead to handle the trials and hardships in this life, being able to rely on the Holy Spirit's help to find comfort and to persevere. And finally, you are blessed because of the joy that is to come. See, no hardship, pain or struggle in this life can diminish that joy that's coming. Nor can any happiness, contentment or elation here and now compare to the joy that will be ours when Jesus takes us to the place he has prepared for us. And at last, we too will see him face to face. Let's just bow our heads in prayer. Father God, we worship you. We worship the Lord Jesus, for he did rise from the dead and he is alive. We worship him because he is both Lord and God. And we worship him because he promises us who believe, who repent and believe, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that we'll be taken to heaven to be with him. And we pray for that day and long for it, Lord. Indeed, Lord, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus, come. May I say these things in your name. Amen.